in England back in 1643, Parliament called upon learned, godly, and judicious divines to meet at that grand cathedral that is called Westminster Abbey. And when these church leaders, who is what they called the divine, I don't know how that fits together with church leaders, but these church leaders were tasked to provide advice <clears throat> to Parliament and thereby to the king and to the country on the matters of theology and worship and doctrine and polity for the Church of England, the Anglican Church. <clears throat> and so it was quite an extended meeting. It was what birthed that which is now called the Westminster Confession, a monumental achievement. The church coming together to say, this is who we are, and we've got it on paper. This is who we are, and this is what we believe. Now, can you imagine all of the fragments of what people might have thought church to be coming together in one place to have that conversation, much less to agree enough in order that any list of things be put down on paper. The church then is not so different than the church now. It was a miracle that they made their list. And it became a teaching tool. Immediately it became a teaching tool. In fact, like the Catholic Church had had its catechesis, its list of questions, and its prompted answers. Now, these who were Protestants in the mix, these that were of Reformed faith, were seeking that same type of clout to have their list of the right questions and the right answers. And there was something good about it because when you've got a list like that, you can use a list like that. And surely the church did. In fact, the prescribed questions and prescribed answers numbered in their short form 107. I have a list in my office if you want to read it. 107 questions with the answers. Now, you may not have realized that in this sermon series that, that Jonathan and I are dealing with some questions that actually have been plucked out of the shorter catechism of the Westminster Confession. Is there anybody that even knew that? Okay, I didn't think so. Because when we first began to think through this series, Jonathan and I agreed that maybe it would be better for us not to use the word Westminster in it. I asked him this past week, I said, I haven't used the word Westminster 
And immediately, Becca, our youth director, said in staff meeting, oh, Jonathan used it about 10 times. <laughs> I said, it's time for me to use it too. The questions which begin with that prominent one, what is the chief end of man? Which continues with who is the redeemer of God's elect? Do these ring a bell for the last couple of Sundays? And then today, what we aim to focus on is who is our only hope? And this is not a trick question, and I bet you know the answer to it. So I'm going to ask the question again to you. So look me in the eye and answer this question. Who is our only hope? That was pitiful. That was pitiful. Who is our only hope? Amen. Let's try it one more time. Benny, you lead us all, okay? Who who is our only hope? God bless us if we don't know that. I'm glad somebody put it down on paper. I'm glad somebody has across the ages been asking that important question. As Wesley Wood, genius of the religious front, member of the Anglican clergy, as Wesley Wood, John Wesley made his own revisions to that document. And in fact, not only did he respect that document, but he also wanted to clarify that it was not Methodist in any way, shape, or form. That document was very much Calvinist. And yet, instead of throwing the baby out with the bathwater, John Wesley took that document, included it in his own Christian library of important books to know. But everything that looked like Calvinism in the document, he just simply struck it out with his pen. <laughs> the copy I have in the office has... Wesley's revision of the Shorter Catechism with all the words and phrases that he had struck through and reframed with his Arminian theology, his free will theology, his mercy theology, his view to the fact that God simply gives us the freedom to choose. This is what the greatest honor of humankind can be, possibly be, is that God entrusts God-likeness to us. He has not decided from the beginning who are the elect and who are the non-elect. But that we are called to make our decisions as to these saving graces of our Lord Jesus Christ. He concurred that catechism is essential for Methodist and wanted this to be a part of what he did 
in the early Methodist movement. Some of it he got from his mother and daddy. I think more from his mother than his daddy. The tales that are told of Susanna Wesley and how she raised her family, 19 children, now nine of whom died in infancy, but still, these children who were under her tutelage for lo, those many years of their growing up, she had rules that they followed. Some of them are very strange rules, but she had rules. Even before a ch child in her family could speak, they still had to revere prayer. Before breakfast, they would gather as a family and share together in saying the Lord's Prayer. And even if a child could not speak, if a child could not kneel for the sharing in that worship event in the family, they still had to fold their hands in reverence to what was going on. It was a part, such a part, of the way in which John Wesley was raised. There was an orderliness of thought and practice with a hope to instill not simply the rubrics of faith, but the very heart of faith, the love of Christ, not only in this generation, but the generations to come. I remember the quote of one of our great church historians of recent years, Yaroslav Pelikan, who said, tradition is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. That's why I'm careful with those two words. Tradition is a very good thing. Traditionalism is being in war with Christ himself. The tensions of Jesus' interactions with the Pharisees and scribes were of this nature. Those who were temple leaders who saw that the things that had been going on for time immemorial, it was important because they were the watchful ones to keep those things moving in the way that they had received them. That, my friends, is traditionalism. Jesus, however, we know allowed for tradition to become a marked part of who he was with the disciples, giving them insight to how the temple had strayed and gotten it wrong through the years. Jesus called people back to God himself and what God was about. 
What are the greatest commandments? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, your might, your strength. And a second like unto it. Love your neighbor as yourself. In Colossians, Paul's concern is this. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental or elementary spirits of the universe and not according to Christ. Now, this passage goes on, and in fact, I would encourage you to read the entirety of Colossians, this letter that has so, so deep a meaning for us as we seek to understand what our role is in the church and in Christ. We cut short our reading this morning without going into describing the fact that there were some in Colossae in the church that believed that not only were these early Christians uh, of some other denomination connected with Christ, but they did not understand how important it was for them to keep the festivals and to watch the new moons and to keep the Sabbaths and to worship even angels and to dwell on visions. These things that they had somehow ascertained were absolutely essential to being Christian. And Paul is saying, don't let all that legalism become a part of who you are for these are the ones who are living in an elementary sort of way is all this still important you better bet that it is but the question is how do we do this what do we do with this information from the Apostle Paul. Now my wife's father, and some of you will well know him too, Alec Bullington, who was the pastor here at Pittman Park from 1968 to 1972. Alec Bullington went to Yale Divinity School for his theological training. It was an assortment of colorful professors and students. And he has shared with me across the years of his encounter with incredible people at that school. One of the ones that I was fascinated to hear Alex say that he knew as a fellow student at Yale was Will Campbell. Will Campbell, this Baptist preacher turned social critic of the 1970s 
who was the author of a revolutionary book of memoirs of his Mississippi life growing up called Brother to a Dragonfly. I bet somebody here has read that book. I went in search of it on my bookshelf and was unable to find it this past week, but I am, I am going to find that book and reread it. It is a fascinating telling of his story. He was a prophet in an age that needed a prophet. He was a storyteller par excellence. One of the stories that Will Campbell tells is of a fellow who came up to him one day and said, Jesus is like an Easter chicken. Now, this is weird, but this is exactly what Will said the guy told him. Jesus is like an Easter chicken that my little Karen got one time, a pretty thing dyed deep purple. Do any of you remember the kinds of chicks that they used to sell? Fortunately, somebody put a stop to that stuff. But you could go into any grocery store, any hardware store around Easter time, and you could see these brightly colored little chicks that were just so precious that were there for you to purchase for a nickel or a dime and take it home with you and let it run around on your kitchen floor and just to spend some time with it, you know. It was an Easter thing. It looked like Easter. This chick particularly, deep-dyed purple. But then he said that that chick began feathering out, you know, putting out those pin feathers, those wings. New feathers came in, and they weren't purple at all. And the bigger that chicken got, the less little Karen wanted to have anything to do with it. Because it looked like this purple mess. With some feathers that were purple, some feathers that weren't. In fact, the feathers that weren't purple were red. This was a Rhode Island red chicken. And Will said his friend told him, he said, I finally decided that that, that chicken needed a different home. And so he went with his daughter over to his mother's, Karen's grandmother's house, where she kept chickens out in the backyard. And they tossed that chicken back out with the other chickens. And you know what happened? Those, those other chickens began pecking that new chicken that came in. And giving that new chicken heck for just being who he was, trying to still be an Easter chicken, you know, there in the backyard. But finally, the feathers kept coming and the chicken world relaxed a little bit. And Will, his friend, told him, he said, and before you knew it, you couldn't tell one chicken from the other. For that Easter chicken had done gone and fit in with all the other chickens. Now, I hope you get it. You and I, Easter people that we claim to be, We can look just like the rest of the world. 
unless we're intentional in following Jesus Christ. You remember that Paul also said over in Romans, he said, be not conformed to this world. Here he is going on and on about not letting anyone take you captive through their philosophy and empty deceit. But what he is saying is, again, do not be conformed to this world. For there's always going to be someone who will apply some type of legalism in order to get you in order. I read an article on the life of Harriet Tubman recently. This one, this precious saint of a woman, this one who was so filled with the grace of God and Christ as her Lord, this one who was born into slavery, but who was convinced that God intended her to be free. She became a Moses, literally called Moses by those whom she helped to get into that underground railroad. Moses leading other slaves to freedom. Robert Ellsberg, the one who wrote the article, said this, he said, It is one of the miracles of Christian history that African slaves, having received a false gospel from their Christian slave masters, nevertheless heard in the biblical story a message of life and of liberation. The slave master's catechism stressed the virtue of obedience, but the slaves heard a different message. Not the God of slave masters, but the God of the oppressed. You see how important this is, this, these words that, that Paul is speaking to us today in Colossians. Harriet Tubman got it. These legalisms that we allow to work into the mix of what we perceive that the church has to have in order to make it what it is are the very things that fly in the face of what Christ wishes to bring to us. And that is His very presence directing us to be His people of love. How can the world, how can the church go so far off course? I'll tell you how. It's by taking our eyes off of Christ. Taking our eyes off of Christ. Paul states God made you alive with him when he forgave us all our trespasses, erasing the record with its legal demands, nailing it to the cross. I hear so many people talking about, about nailing their sins to the cross. And if you are a Pharisee, that works fine here in this situation of the Scripture. But if you are talking about your sins and nailing those to the cross simply as an example of your disobedience to God, you've missed the point of the Scripture. If there is any bit of legalism in you where you look at someone else around you and judge them, that is what is being nailed to the cross. 
the world of the Pharisees, the world of the scribes, the world of those who have all of these conditions for what it means to be of Christ. This week, my reading carried me into the home of a Pharisee. If you want to read the story, it's over in Luke chapter 7. Jesus, having been invited there for dinner, only before anything really has begun good, a lady of the street comes in and kneels down behind Jesus and begins to weep there in the presence of all who are gathered. And she takes her tears and her hair and begins to bathe the feet of our Lord. And she has come with perfume and she opens the perfume and pours it on his feet as she continues to weep. And Simon the Pharisee looks at Jesus and said, if you knew who this woman was, you wouldn't let this happen. Can you imagine Jesus' reaction in hearing that from Simon? I mean, can you imagine? Jesus looks at Simon and says, there was a banker, just as Jesus would tell us a story here. There was a banker and there were two people that owed him a lot. A lot of money, one of them 500 denarii and another one 50 denarii, neither of them could pay. So the banker simply wrote it off and said, okay, you have to pay nothing. Which one of those, Jesus said, do you think would be the more grateful? And Simon said to Peter, of course, it would be the one who had the greater debt forgiven. And he said, I came into your house. You didn't offer me any opportunity to have my feet washed. You didn't send even a servant over to do that. She is kneeling here in our presence, overwhelmed with what God has done in her life. I can imagine Simon was not able to put that thought out of his mind. St. Patrick is purported to have said, Christ be with me, Christ within me, Christ behind me, Christ ahead of me, Christ on my left. Christ on my right, Christ above me, Christ below me. And even if he didn't say that, it's pretty good stuff. Don't you agree? Because that's the only way that all this can work. It's, it's been six or seven years ago now that someone handed me a copy of a note that had been written in the actual script of a hospice patient who was receiving in-house care and 
this person who handed me this note said, you'll want to read this, which I'm glad it was passed on. For in this, in this little note, in this little note, the patient, the one who was dying, made it a note which was also a prayer. It began, Dear God, I thank you for letting me see another day. Now, have you ever heard anybody say thank you instead of thank you? That was this person. All the way through the note, anytime thanks was written, it was think instead. Dear God, I thank you for letting me see another day. Thank you for letting me see all the beautiful things you have made. All the great nurses, may you keep them safe and happy. And then this phrase, you changed me and made me think of things in a better way. Now, on the one hand, if you read that note and think that a nurse might be reading it, you could say to yourself, he's writing that note about the nurses. But if you've paid attention to the way in which this note began, you know that this is a prayer and that the reference is specifically to God. You changed me and made me think of things in a better way. And so, just as our own little catechism I ask you again a prescribed question <laughs> with a prescribed answer. Who is our only hope? Jesus Christ. Who is our only hope? Jesus Christ. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus, continue, continue. Continue to live your lives in Him.